0: This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Christina Young, and today we're talking about groundwater in Moab. We explore where it comes from, how much there is, and how much we have left.
1: My full name is Thomas E. Lockmar. My students call me Dr. Tom. I like that. I'm an associate professor in the geosciences department on the Logan campus of Utah State University,
0: so I'd love to really just start with general information about, you know, we have surface water here in Moab, we have groundwater, we have a term called an aquifer. Can you just like talk about where water is on the landscape and help us define what these different terms mean?
1: I think of it as starting with the ocean. So if you want to know where water is, the vast majority of water on the earth is in the oceans. It sits out under the sun and... The water evaporates and moves up um, into the atmosphere, and then winds blow it on land, and then we get precipitation. And precipitation can do any one of a number of things. What people see on the surface is the surface runoff. When it rains, the water travels on the surface, but it also uh, soaks into the subsurface as well. The streams are flowing when it's not raining, when there's no precipitation, and that's a result of water that was able to infiltrate into the ground and is now reappearing in low places on the earth, which are stream valleys, and they keep the rivers flowing. So the vast majority of the time that streams are flowing, it's because of uh, water coming from the ground into the streams.
0: Can you give me a visual or kind of explain, it almost seems mysterious to me that, you know, here in Moab, so much water can be year round, like perennial in some of our creeks. How is that? Is it just seeping through the soil? Is it finding cracks? How is it really entering into? Uh,
1: All the the above. You know, whatever way it can find its way down. The gravity is pulling it down. It's sitting on the surface. Some of it does flow off during the, the events. The rest seeps down into the subsurface. It moves very slowly. So these materials, they are porous. So they will absorb water, but the water, the, their permeability is actually very low. So water will percolate down through the portion that's not saturated. So the pore spaces between the sediment grains or in the cracks in the rocks or whatever it's moving through until you get to the water table, you get to a certain depth, which varies depending on the region. And of course the climate has a lot to do with that and the geology and all those sorts of things. But eventually, you get to the water table and all the pore spaces, the the empty parts between the soil particles or in in the cracks in the rock, they're full of water. But above that, there is some water, but there's also air. It's mostly air and the water is trying to move down. It's denser than air, so it displaces it as it moves downward until it reaches the water table. And then it's in the saturated zone, like I said, where the pore spaces are filled entirely with water. And it it takes a while to seep down. And then once it gets into the saturated zone, it moves very slowly. We're talking on the order of centimeters per year. That's how slowly it moves. What we're seeing at the surface usually was something that precipitated decades or centuries or maybe even millennia ago. It just takes a long time to travel in the subsurface.
0: That's incredible to think about. It is. (laughs) You know, here in Moab, we're talking about water, you know, percolating down either through cracks or through the soil or just through the dome itself, entering, you know, the water table. But, you know, we don't get a ton of rain here. And when we do get rain, what I see most of it is kind of washing just along the surface. And so tell me about how water is like what's actually happening i assume snow is a large part of oh. of how that's happening here
1: yeah moab is extremely fortunate to be at the base of the lasalle mountains because there's a lot of snow in the lasalles and that's where the it looks like the majority of the recharge is coming from it's snowmelt that percolates down some of it obviously does supply the surface streams but it appears that the majority of the ends up in the groundwater, ends up in the, in the subsurface, and then it moves to the Colorado River because that's the lowest water level. Water goes down to the lowest spot. So all the water in any area, certainly in the Moab area, it's moving to the Colorado River. And the snow that melts in the La LaSalle, that's where it ends up. But it would take more than 100 years, I would imagine, for groundwater to move from the La Salles where the snow melt occurred until it got to the river.
0: Yeah, so, so tell me a little bit more. So it, snow is percolating down. It's eventually going to the Colorado River at a very mm-hmm. slow rate. But you mm-hmm. know, explain to me, how is it actually getting to the Colorado River in our specific, in our little kind of closed geography here in Moab?
1: The La Salles are tertiary, shallow, intrusive, igneous rocks. So they themselves are not very permeable, but the older sedimentary rocks that are around the flanks of the La they dip away from the La They've been pushed up and then they're exposed. And so that's where the water gets in. It gets into those sedimentary rocks at a relatively high elevation. Those rocks are not horizontal and they actually are dipping towards the Colorado River. So the water gets into those rocks The sandstones, the Navajo, Wingate, and Kayenta sandstones are the main aquifers. And then they get deeper because they're dipping towards the river. They get deeper the closer you get to the river, and that's where the water is is flowing down along those units because they're not horizontal. Being sandstones, they've got a good porosity, permeability, and they accept water. They can contain water, store water, and then it also moves relatively quickly. Like I said, centimeters per year is, is fast for groundwater. And every spring when the snow melts in the LaSalle, it adds some, compensate for what's being withdrawn, you know, what's going into the river. But then there are wells down into the sandstones that pump the water that Moab uses for whatever purposes the city provides water to all of its customers.
0: No, oh, interesting. When I think of an aquifer, I think of like a giant pool underground. You're talking about water, you're t- you're talking about sandstone as an aquifer and I'm trying to reconcile what I picture as solid rock with a pool. So when when we talk about aquifer and the ability to pull water out of it, what what are we actually talking about? Can you describe well, it?
1: Let me give you the strict definition of an aquifer. So an aquifer is either a layer of rock or unconsolidated material at the Earth's surface, you know, weathered types of materials, uh, loose sands, or something that's at the surface, or it can be a, a a body of rock that can both store water and can transmit it in usable quantities. Okay, so that's all. That's what an aquifer is. Uh, what you're thinking of is the water. So the water is something big may or may not be in something that that could be an aquifer. If it doesn't have the water, then it's not an aquifer. But if it does, then it is an aquifer and the water gets in there and it's stored in the pore spaces. And like I said, it's able to transmit water in usable quantities. So if somebody drills a hole down into that unit and then puts a pump in it, they can remove water and it will be replaced because it moves quickly, relative like centimeters per year Relatively quickly into the hole that you've drilled in order to get water to get a pump in so you can get water out of it.
0: You were talking about these two aquifers, you're talking about snow melt and percolation through these different layers. But we also have Mill Creek and Pack Creek, these kind of surface level perennial streams, so perennial meaning year round streams. Is any of that getting into these aquifers or is it all from the snow directly?
1: The shallow aquifer gets its water from the streams. I think it doesn't pack Creek flows along the Spanish Valley, right? It does. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's, I think was identified as the most likely primary source of recharge to that aquifer comes from Pack Creek. Got it. Mill Creek, the connection between Mill Creek and the deep sandstone aquifer is debated. My inclination is that based on, recent data, it looks like Mill Creek, it is not a major source of recharge to the sandstone aquifer. It looks like this water in the sandstone aquifer is coming from snow melt high on the, the south, that it's percolating in right where the, the two units meet with the sandstones dipping away on top of the igneous rock, the tertiary rock, which is not very porous or permeable. So the the snowmelt will flow over that. And when it reaches the sandstones, it'll get into the sandstones because they, they're more porous and permeable. And that was debated. Not everybody agrees that that Mill Creek is not a source of recharge, but it looks like if it is, it's a very small, that the more important source of recharge by far is the snowmelt and the LaSalle's. And the data that I've looked at, I'm inclined to agree with that particular interpretation. So we've got two very knowledgeable, different parties that have studied this and have come to different conclusions and that was kind of why I was hired was to as an independent expert which do I find more credible and I find the the La Salle Mountain snowmelt recharge being more credible based on the data that were collected by the party that did that study
0: yeah let's talk about that for a little bit people in the community might have heard about these different water studies and people are studying water and kind of all of this originated with this understanding that you know we're talking about recharge from snow melt and then we're talking about the fact that we pull water out and so a big outstanding question is what is the recharge rate how much is in there to begin with and how much are we pulling and how much water do we really have to use in this valley? And so I'd love to get your opinion on that. But, you know, tell us first about these kinds of two different studies and how you were brought in to, to look oh, at Oh,
1: well, like I said, they, they came to different conclusions. The folks that paid for them wanted to know what should we take as fact? You know, they don't agree which one is more credible, at least in, in my eyes, in my mind. The numbers actually are pretty tenuous. It was more a matter, from from my perspective, it was more a matter of one had a relatively rosy scenario in terms of how much recharge, how much is available, this sort of thing. And it was quite reasonable, but very little data were actually collected to support it. Everything was, was, yes, this obeys all the fundamental laws and principles and rules in groundwater, but they didn't actually go out and measure various kinds of things to get at estimating recharge rates directly or indirectly, I should say. And the other study used a lot of water chemistry, which people wouldn't really think necessarily, how can you determine recharge rates from water chemistry? You measure what's in the water or what's not in the water and use that indirectly to try to estimate where the recharge is and roughly how much there is. And that study was, more of it was less rosy. It's like we don't we don't have as much recharge as this other report would have us believe. You know, Moab is growing and water use is increasing. So you want to know when do we say enough is enough? When is a an aquifer fully appropriated? You know, with the Colorado River, you can measure how much water is flowing in the river. It's right there in front of you. But you know, how thick are these aquifers? What's the volume of saturation? How much can we pump? How how will that affect the water table you know it's going to drop down when you pump water but how fast so the second report you know was like a year later used some water chemistry and that was saying we're probably pumping as much or nearly as much water as we should right now we probably shouldn't be planning on a large increase in the amount of water removed from the from even from the sandstone aquifer, the better aquifer now because it it looks like we may be using all that we should be using The state engineer has to decide when is an not fully appropriate. I tend to go with the one that is is less rosy. I think that that's probably a, a more accurate estimate. From my perspective, the most important message that I gave to the interested parties in this that hired me to do it is that they need to be monitoring the water levels and the pumping rates in the wells that they have so that they can document If those water levels start going down or the pumping rates start decreasing, they know that in advance and they can say, look, these are bad signs. We need to do something so that it doesn't get worse. Monitor the water chemistry also. If you see that the water quality is going down, that's not a good sign either. You could be getting water from the overlying, the shallow aquifer I talked about that's being recharged by Pack Creek. These things start happening then something needs to be done to try to prevent it from getting to the point where we don't have enough water to supply the needs of everyone that we service.
0: Thinking about drawing from an aquifer versus the amount that's coming in, what is best practice for managing an aquifer?
1: The situation with an aquifer, so the water is contained in the pore spaces in the rock or the the unconsolidated loose material and it's sitting there before anybody does anything with it. And it's, it's being recharged in one place and it's discharging to a river, for example, you know the Colorado River or any place like that. So it's completely undisturbed. And initially, and this is the, the way water rights works is usually the senior water rights, they call them senior, the ones that were obtained the longest time ago, the first ones are water from rivers because that's easy to get to, right? You dig a ditch, you dig a canal, and you just divert the water from the river. It's a lot simpler and less expensive than drilling a well. Once all the water in the river has been appropriated, so wells drilling goes in later. People start putting wells in to get groundwater, which would end up in the river. But once you start, you put in the first well and you start pumping water out, the water table goes down. It's an inevitable impact. The second person puts in a well, it goes down a little bit more. There's no best or worst practice. It's more a matter of what can you live with? Okay. And the state engineer decides what we're going to live with. (laughs) The division of water rights says, okay, well, we can live with this much gradual decline in the water table with this many wells. And, but once we get to a certain point, They'll say, okay, that's as much as we can, we're going to let, and we're not going to allow any new wells to be drilled in this aquifer.
0: And so the scenario that you're describing implies a consistent recharge rate. So like the idea that snow mount will necessarily stay the same?
1: No, no, it doesn't. The bulk of the water that's in the sandstone aquifer is old, and it was recharged quite a while ago, and the climate back then may have been cooler and wetter than it is now. Mm. We have that same recharge rate now that we had then. Those are really difficult numbers to estimate. Recharge rates are very difficult, which is why the two studies vary. There's no doubt that the climate has changed since the time when the old water that's been stored in the aquifer for all these millennia was first recharged. You're looking at a dynamic system over a period of time that's much greater than humans are used to thinking about. So should we restrict the amount of withdrawal to the current recharge? And that is almost never done because we're already taking more than the current recharge. So you're having to withdraw some water out of storage. And how much you withdraw, you can, you can see what the impact, negative impact is the water table will go down faster if you pump more than if you pump less. So how much of a water table decline is acceptable? And the state engineer, the division of water rights, they decide that. That's their decision. Well, we can live with this. Oh, this is too much. No more wells.
0: Based on all that you've seen and what you know of of Moab. Would you drill another well?
1: My main emphasis to the interested parties that hired me was you need to start collecting data on water level decline and discharge rates and chemistry. We have some data that we didn't have before that suggests that things are not as rosy as we might have hoped for, but we don't really know for certain. Neither, neither study is correct. Okay. You talk about science, like neither is correct. It's just a matter that the second study seems to indicate we probably should be collecting more data so that we can pin this down a little better. The more data you have, the clearer the picture. Having the data, to me, is that that's the ultimate. Then you then you get a better picture, and then you can make more informed decisions. The Divi- Utah Division of Water Rights controls the use of water, surface and groundwater in the state of Utah. So they're going to be the ones that make the ultimate decisions on whether or not more water can be appropriated in the Moab area from wells in the the two aquifers or not. And if you wanna understand the um, situation in those aquifers, you need to collect data. And the best data will come from, like I said, water levels from wells, pumping rates from wells, and water chemistry changes over time. Because that would, that would convince the state engineer that, okay, these impacts that they're concerned about are actually happening. It started to happen now. And we need to take action to prevent this from getting any worse.
0: Well, Tom, I really appreciate your time and all of this information. And I think it's just so important for the people who live here to understand this stuff. So well, really I've enjoyed
1: myself immensely.
0: To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.